and welcome to Talking in Shul, a roundtable podcast. I'm Zahava Stadler in Toronto, and we have Mimi Lewis joining us from Cambridge, Massachusetts. Hi, Mimi. Tamar Fox will be joining us just for our second segment today. But to start off, this month we're talking about The Get, A Young Wife's Tale, a play by Lieba Weinberg. For that segment, we'll be joined by Lieba Weinberg to discuss the play. And for our second segment, we're talking about Jewish gifts. What makes a good Jewish gift and what Jewish gift-giving practices do we love, hate, and take part in? All right. Well, Tuesday night, Zahava and I got to watch a reading of a play called The Get, A Young Wife's Tale. The play was commissioned by Brooklyn Jews and CBE, which is Congregation Beth Elohim with Rattlestick Theater. It's described as a Jewish myth about divorce and how we salvage and recover meaning through profound loss and ancient ritual. We are really excited to be joined by Liba Weinberg, the writer of this and many other plays. Liba, thank you so much for being here. Oh, you guys, thank you for having me. It's very, very, very exciting. <laughs> I actually wanted to start off like before the play, because I noticed in the publicity info that it was commissioned. And I'm just wondering, what does that mean? Did, how does that influence your subject matter to have it be commissioned? That's a really good question. So usually in theatrical sort of endeavors, a commission is sort of very open-ended. Uh, it tends to be something like based on a playwright's past work, a theater will commission a playwright to write something that can be anything. And the the idea is almost the freedom is intentional so that they're not Great. prescribing whatever the content is. But what happened with this was that there was a call for a new American Jewish play, basically, by an emerging like Jewish playwright. Um, and... And the subject matter was part of the pitch, actually. So I specifically pitched like something to do with the role of women in Judaism and in particular this idea of the relationship uh, with God and how that relates to divorce and like marriage covenants, basically, that I was really interested in. So that's sort of like the context of what commission means. And then specifically in this case, it is slightly anomalous. Like it is a little bit different mm -hmm. from how commission usually works. And Mimi described this in her introduction as a reading um, because we were watching a streaming version of the play because in this moment, playhouses are not themselves actually open for physical visitors. Um, has this play ever been staged for in-person performance or was this reading the premiere? Um, how, how should we think of this in relation to normal production? insert anything for this right now Zahava and I don't we, we will all have long complicated answers but I think that with what happened with the get was the first public reading was actually March 1st right before everything went nuts and it was at congregation Beth Elohim in one of the like sanctuary spaces and then when everything happened we were originally thinking about doing a reading and then we pushed it um, because over the summer we were all preoccupied with other things um, and then this is the second time the words like have been heard out loud and shared out loud um, and with new work like I gave them pages on Sunday night, new pages on Sunday night for Tuesday. So I had never heard the full draft from start to finish until the reading also. <laughs> and it's going to ch keep changing, incidentally. It's not going to stay the way it is. So in the context of normal, it is not. <laughs> you know, there were some parts of the play that I actually thought 
worked quite well over Zoom. In particular, the mother, who's played by, it's her name, Tova... Feldshu, yes. Um, Feldshu. Um, there are a lot of voicemails from her. And so you just sort of see her in front of her computer with her white Apple headphones in, um, giving, sharing these voicemails. And, it you know, it's just like, okay, mom sent a voice... Uh, or a, a video message instead of a voicemail. That piece really worked. I'm so glad that that worked. I also think <laughs> there's something about her. First of all, Tova Feldshu is like the epitome of a Jewish um, like icon of like not just motherhood, but sort of Jewish femaleness that I think is really beautiful. But it <laughs> it, 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 it was amazing to hear those things coming out of her and also to realize in talking with people how many people are like fielding these voicemails that are filling up their voicemail boxes from their parents that nobody knows what to do with and then you I listen to them sometimes and I'm like what are they even talking about it's like some sort of stream of consciousness like story in which I'm implicated because I don't have children and did I know that like the pilgrims were actually this and by the way your father is this and I'm like how does this woman's mind work it's actually kind of magical some of those voicemails are actually based not even just on my mother's voicemails, but on like voicemails that friends have shared with me being like, listen to this. Can you believe it? And I'm like, no. <laughs> I love that. I love that. You know, what's funny is actually this is not the first time we have discussed on the podcast a Tova Felchu performance of a play because, of course, she played Golda Meir in the video production of Golda's Balcony that we watched and discussed on the podcast. It also happens to be that I'm a big fan of the TV show Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, in which she plays a very stereotypical Jewish mother. And in this play, initially, I had this reaction like, oh, this again, right? Like, oh, is she going to be a cliche? And then there's an evolution that happens over the course of the play where there's a deepening of the character that I really appreciated. As much as I love watching her sing Where's, Where's the, the Bathroom on Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, which is a masterwork of a song, I still think um, that, you know, that depiction is sort of like a walking Jewish mom stereotype. And this I was sort of surprised to find is very much not, even though at first, it's sort of gestures in that direction. But maybe we've jumped a little bit ahead. And yeah. maybe we should ask you, to the extent that this is possible, to just give our listeners a sense of what the play is about, you know, a thumbnail of the plot um, before we really dive into the layers. I'm going to do the traditional artist Lotso and be like, oh my gosh, I don't really know what the play is about. You guys know better than I do. But I will, I will attempt to describe it without sounding like self-serving artist who is in process and doesn't know anything, even though that's truly what I believe. Um, but to me, it's about my relationship with the Old Testament God, <laughs> which is a complicated thing. Literally, it's about a, a, a young woman, Ida. I name all my characters after my sisters or people in my life, and that's my sister's name is Ida. A young woman who gets married to a man who's an inventor and a bad magician, which is my winky way of talking about the Old Testament God. Um, and and then, and it's not a spoiler, she gets divorced in the second scene. Um, and I've structured the play around the 
six days of creation and then the day of rest. Um, The idea being that in her relationship with the Old Testament God, in both the marriage and the divorce, the covenant continues and and a true human being is formed. I think that she is formed at the end of it through that through because I think love is an act of creation. I think um, understanding the other in a way creates the other Um, and. And I'm also really fascinated I, uh, to prep for the play. I did a, like a, a lot of Chavruta with Rabbi Matt Green from Brooklyn Jews. And Chavruta means when two people are partners and study Torah or anything, quite frankly, together and are in conversation about it. Um, and one of the things that he was really interested in that I really, two things. The first was I had always assumed that everybody questioned their faith. That like in order to be a person of faith, you question your faith. You're a skeptic. You 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 try to figure out what it is. Some days you believe. I always say I'm forty nine fifty one on God. It depends on the day, um, and that you have to like you know you you. And then he sort of was like, no, Liba, actually that kind of like that that space for questioning is actually a very Jewish thing um, that is particular to our our faith, right? That 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 Moses doubted, um, that so many of the leaders in our, you know, in our tradition doubted that that's actually a very specifically Jewish thing. So that's one thing I wanted to explore. Um, and then the other thing was this deep, um, and I'm curious, uh, everything I'm saying, I'm curious how it pings for you guys, The other thing that I find really beautiful about the Old Testament God and the idea of the covenant is is that is that uh, that God needs us almost more than we need that God. We need each other. Um, That God needs only survives when we remember that God and vice versa. Um, And, you know, I was joking with my father this morning because he watched the play and told me all sorts of things about what he thought. He liked it, which is good. You know, you never know. Um, But (laughs) one of the things he said that I really loved was he he was like, yeah, like the God is always reminding us. I mean, you made me a promise. (laughs) I made you a promise. We made a promise. Mm -hmm. I will protect you. You will protect me. You know, Um, that there's a sort of, like a real love, a real relationship um, that comes with all of the pain and all of the trust that negotiate the constant negotiation that I think is, um, I think it's really beautiful. The bride and the bridegroom. Um, I think it's really gorgeous. It fascinated me, which includes all the horrible fights that people who are married have that, that, that really at the end of the day, only further grounds and like cements their love for each other. If it's a true love. Those are the sort of the things I'm playing with. Going off of the idea of Ida as, well, of Baal as a God figure. Baal being the husband slash ex-husband. Thank you. It's not clear who divorces whom, right? Like we don't know who asked for the divorce. We know who initiates the ritual. It was Baal basically invites Ida to come get a get. But who breaks the contract or is the contract even broken? I think is one of one of the questions that I left the play with. I love that. And yes, uh, Zahava is absolutely right. Ida is the protagonist. Baal is the husband slash ex-husband, God, false God, not my call. Um, and the there's a character who's the other man who plays everybody else. And then there's Mama who plays her mother. But I sort of intentionally left it unclear who breaks the contract. We know that the contract is somehow 
breached, perhaps not broken. We just know that they cannot necessarily mm -hmm. continue in the kind of closeness that they began with, which I think is true. And this is true to my faith in the sense that I began with a very close relationship and then it grew, it changed, it developed. It, it, it can't sustain itself when the, they, the two of them meet in an elevator in crisis. And that's a very specific place in which you can start to like trust another person. And then you have to walk out of the elevator and navigate the world with whatever it is that you learned from them, whatever they invented for you or whatever magic you do or don't believe in. Because you're not always going to be turning to Baal or whatever in times of crisis, you're also going to be turning to that in times of like quotidian interaction. So I'm glad that you liked that it wasn't specific who broached it, because um, that, that is intentional. I think that the way that we're discussing this, for those who haven't had a chance to encounter the play, um, it may sound very heavy. Um, it's very laden with symbolism and, you know, and if, if you heard it described right off the bat as uh, about wrestling with creation and your relationship with God, I think it's important to say, first of all, that this is, this, it's actually really funny. And also, I don't think that I got to the notion of a relationship with God or a false God until well into the play, like it's something that builds slowly and you're very much experiencing a human relationship. Um, and it's funny that you say, God, false God, not your call, when you name the character after the most prominent idol in the Old Testament, like false God's a little thick there in terms of the symbolism. Though, of course, it's the same thing as the word for husband, right? The, the word for, for husband and the word for the most prominent idol in the books of the prophets is the same word. I love that, Sahava. You are so, and actually a, a couple of my readers, like people who have read the script as I sort of edit, have the ones who are very familiar with the Old Testament have brought up the point of, oh, it's a, it's a false God. It's a false God. And that's the only association. And I'd be like, well, it's not the only association. I actually found it in a listing of all the names of God. And it's actually included in those as well. And my Israeli friends, their first association was great. Yeah. It means husband. And the fact that you just equated, I was like, well, of course, the most prominent false god is also a husband, I think is actually, speaking of funny, just the perfect uh, equivalency <laughs> there as far as the way we put people on pedestals a lot of the time in relationships and make, make false gods out of them. And that idea of putting on a pedestal, I just want to say that the thing that I actually really enjoyed about um, later in the play and, and as things start to come together and, and get revealed is how different Baal is when we sort of encounter him unvarnished as a character than as he is in the memories that Ida is sharing with the audience. Most of the time we are experiencing this other person through her telling. And while she's very much in the throes of, of an emotional experience and a mourning experience for this marriage, and then, um, and then we suddenly experience him directly as a as a sort of really in the world character. She's revealed a bit as an unreliable narrator, but aren't we all unreliable narrators of our own relationships? And so that also was was just sort of a 
both a fun about face and also like a great revealing moment for me as the play went on. So I really appreciated that. I'm really happy to hear you say that. I'm also happy to hear you say, I want to echo you and say that I, I'm not a very serious person. <laughs> I, mm. I think about, I wrestle with a lot of serious questions the way I think we all do. Um, but my father famously, whenever I would write anything or be an, in anything as a, cause I'm also an actor, he would say, well, you know, Lijka, it has to be funny. Is it funny? Nobody cares if it's not funny. And I was like, okay. He was like, it doesn't, nobody's, nobody's going to fall in love with you. Nobody's going to take anything away. No one's going to learn anything if it's not funny. Yep. I kind of believe it. I'm not going to lie. I know I've been fed it for many years and this is water. This is water. I'm swimming through it and I don't know it, but I think, uh, I, but I, I do, I do think it's much easier to, to engage an audience when something is funny and relevant. I hope. Speaking of funny, you play at one point with, did you get the get? So the get being the divorce and, you know, Ida and her mom are talking about getting the get, it, you know, um, meanders into a who's on first sort of shtick. Um, actually, not sort of, it does. Um, but I, I also, were you familiar with this ritual of a Jewish divorce? And if not, I'm curious, it felt like you really portrayed this, um, this dreamlike quality of the ritual. I'm not sure that's actually what it feels like or looks like, but in the play, yeah, it's as if it's happening in a haze or. So full disclosure, I do not have a get. Um, I, I, hopefully we'll never get a get. Um, but I interviewed a lot of women who, who got gets and the, um, the uniform response and the description, it was wild how many women gave the same sort of recount was that I barely remember it. He asked for it. I think I still must have it somewhere. And a lot of the language I incorporated into um, Ida's, because Ida's, you know, Ida's our narrator the whole time. She speaks directly to us. In her recounting of it was plucked from so many of those women. This idea of it was always up a flight of stairs, which I also just thought was very beautiful. This idea of like ascension towards whatever it is. Um, there were men in the room and she's the only woman. Um, and also the, one of the women used this language of, it was like, I went back to the shuttle I've never been to. Um, and, mm. and that, and that reaching back, it was like they were trying to find something that was shrouded in a, in a memory and wrapped up and put away that was, and the other thing they all said was there was a non-event. It was an errand. It was, and, and I, on the one hand, I found that interesting and moving as far as like the decentering of the woman in the ritual, um, which is a lot of what I tried to do in this is sort of go, OK, we've seen there the I, there's a famous movie, The Get, that Ronit El-Kabetz made that I highly recommend. That's like an Israeli film about um how difficult it can be for a woman to get a get. I think there's a lot of really, there's a moth story about it. There's a lot of beautiful art about um, the way that a man can keep a get from a woman simply by 
simply by saying, I don't want to give it to her. That's all it actually takes for a man not to give it to a woman. Um, and I think that story has been told. So what I wanted to do is meta theatrically, even though it is difficult for a woman in that situation, I still wanted to make sure that she was the center and that we weren't just condemning the sort of um, patriarchal elements of it all. And instead we're reframing it around what she could salvage from it, which is why, and I don't think this is a spoiler, um, which is why when she tells her mother what happened, she gets to rewrite it. And I think that is a Jewish value, that sort of reconstruction um, of the text in order to better understand it. And I think she has to do it too, where like the actual get is not a ritual that is meant to celebrate love and loss, especially not for the woman. Um, But it could be, it could be with the right, right poet with the right woman you know it could be and i appreciate that you said that this is not when i saw the title of the play i immediately assumed it was going to be a story about a woman who had been refused a get right a woman who was an aguna like a woman who was uh trapped technically speaking in a jewish marriage because she didn't have access to this final ritual step that is needed in order to close out a jewish marriage and it isn't about that. And that made me realize how little I associate the concept of get with its actual purpose as opposed to its subversion, just given how much, um, given how the, the only sort of element of this that's quote unquote worthy of public discussion is when women are uh, stuck because of the lack of a get as opposed to no, its actual purpose is to affect a divorce. And in a way, it's almost like just calling the play the divorce, right? Um, at which I wouldn't have made any assumptions that it's about a woman unable to access a divorce. Um, and yet, the just by layering the ritual on, it's not actually, in fact, it's pretty clear in the play that Ida doesn't know what a get is. Yep. Initially, she's sort of startled by it and she's startled by uh, her ex-husband wanting to go through the final ritual. But at the same time, when she's like, well, why do you want to do this? She's like, what? Are you getting remarried? She doesn't know what it is, but she understands that the reason to do it is moving on. Yep. Which in a very technical sense a legal sense is true, but you don't need to relate to it in a technical or legal sense to understand that that's true. And so in a sense, it's it's a story about closure, but affected through this thing that I associate with being about the opposite of closure. It's really meaningful to me to hear you say that because an interesting thing happens with the title Anybody who is Jewish and knows what a get is has a story about somebody who's been refused to get. And my first thing is like, that's a beautiful story. It has like, go see the movie that Ronit Alcabet's made. Uh, go read this short story or go, you know, explore. But I think that the actual ritual is quite, there are problematic things surrounding it, but the actual ritual is progressive in the sense that at the time it was something that allowed a woman 
to be free of the man in a way. Um, And the other, one of the divorce lawyers I spoke to, I spoke to a divorce lawyer who specialized in Jewish divorce and get law um, in addition to civil divorce. And he said that with a ketubah, you acquire, a ketubah is the Jewish marriage contract, you acquire the woman. Problematic, we can discuss later. Um, With a get, you, you acquire the get itself. Um, which I thought was just also the play on words, right? Of like a get in English. Um, like what do you get out of a get um, as far as what is acquired? Um, I thought was like, what does, what does the woman get out of it? What does the man get out of it? And the woman is released unto all men. And on the one hand, that's absurd. On the other hand, she's free. I, you know, it's Go quite, it. it's, right. I, I I think there's, I think there's something to be salvaged in, in it all. Um, and I'm, I'm really, I'm really happy to hear Zahava that, 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 uh, it uh, upset your expectations, um, while still hopefully delivering on what a get actually is. <laughs> well, and the fact that the get is the completion of this creation story, that now she can go out into the world in a different way having been obviously impacted by the relationship and the divorce. And I even felt that in her language and the way she comes across, that there's this sort of frenetic energy that's gone once she's gotten the get and she can finally rest in this new way. I have to actually shout out the performance of the actor of Lays, Ida. I don't know her name. I'm sorry. Miriam Silverman. She's brilliant. Really fantastic in the in the role. I thought she was amazing. Agreed. She's very, very, very special. Um, And I thought the two of them, Miriam and Tova, I just, I was like, Jewish women are amazing. (laughs) I thought it was very beautiful. Here we are. It's the first night of Hanukkah as we record this. And there's a scene that I'm not sure I understood what to do with, in which Ida is dating a new man. Um, he's non-Jewish, but we learn from their conversation that he's learning to love Judaism. He's engaged. He's ready. He's okay with, if they in the future have kids, raising those kids as Jewish, but he wants a Christmas tree. And that just sends her off. She, she can't. She can't listen any longer once he says that he wants a Christmas tree. And eventually the relationship withers as a result of this big fight. Maybe this is because I'm in a Jewish bubble, but I wasn't actually sure. Are we supposed to be sad for her that she pushed away this great man? Or are we supposed to be proud of her that she, I don't know, is engaged in her Judaism and is holding on to some sort of commitment? Mimi, I adore you. The fact that you're asking this question is exactly what I want the scene to be. Mm. Um, I think that it's in it, that scene is probably the scene that actually elicits the most uh, responses a lot of the time. Um, and it's, partic- it's very particular to the person. It appears to me that what I want is I think in good drama everybody's right and everybody's wrong. So if we portrayed a scene and now we're getting like very meta-religious, meta-theatrical, if we portrayed a scene in which it was just obvious that she should 
you know, not be in a relationship with this man or that he should obviously, that he's being crappy about the tree. I just don't think it would, first of all, just dramatically, it wouldn't be super engaging. As far as the question of her, should we be proud of her or should we just be disappointed in her? The One of the things, so the actor who played the, what I described, I described him as the most wonderful boyfriend in the world. Mm. Um, so the actor who plays the most wonderful boyfriend in the world who isn't Jewish um, asked this question. He said, you know, Liba, I noticed that he never, like, is he going to convert? He never says he's going to convert. And I was like, Alfredo, Alfredo Narciso is the actor who played it. I was like, Alfredo, you are a genius, my man. <laughs> exactly. There, there is, in fact, an, uh, an impasse here because he never says, I'm going to convert. He says, I'm going to engage in the rituals. I want to learn about it. The children will be Jewish. And he never actually says, I'm going to give up the tree. She never says, I actually want to welcome your traditions. She never says, convert and we'll have our own blue tree or whatever it is. And I think that it's that they never actually talk to each other about what's going on. And that's why we're left hanging. And the truth is, it didn't matter which side they ended up on. If he had converted and become a Jew by choice, then we'd have a situation in which they were a Jewish home and super proud and we, they would live in their Jewish bubble. If not, if they decided to go an interfaith route, um, God bless express that's, that happens too. But the key I think is that they're never actually on the same page about it, but they, but they're pretending to be. Right. Um, and then there's the question for me as a Jewish woman of the tree, which I'm like, my parents sort of loosely actually had a tree because I'm a Russian speaking Jew and they're from the Soviet Union. Um, but like, I don't have one. We didn't have it at Christmas. Uh, like it was not a Christmas thing at all. But to me now, still, when I see a Christmas tree, I just have this feeling of like, oh, Christian, like uh, Christian, like he hegemony and like capitalism. Cool, 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 cool. Not in my house. Right. It's not about Jesus. It's about Jewish minoritization. Right. Exactly. Right? That's like it's about it's about being overruled. Um, it reminded me of the way I reacted to the discussion where some people thought that Starbucks taking off the Christmas tree from their cups and having only bright red cups with green circles was abandoning Christmas. And I'm like, how incredibly thorough does your cultural dominance have to be for you not to know that those colors mean Christmas and nothing freaking else? Like how thoroughly oblivious to your own cultural dominance do you have to be? to think that you have been abandoned by Starbucks in this moment, right? And that's why I was like, she she doesn't even know how to say it. It's so true, right? And it's everywhere, by the way. And I wasn't conscious of it until I was in a relationship, a serious relationship with somebody who wasn't Jewish. And we kept coming up against this thing of this tree that I was like, why do you care? You're not, you don't believe in Jesus Christ. And he was like, it's not about that for me. And that's when I was like, oh, well, I don't, you know, I don't, I don't know. I don't know. 
I don't know. I but I know that perhaps this is not my parking spot, you know, mm. <laughs> so to speak. Well, is there any way? So we were lucky enough to get access to this um, to this reading. Uh, through an online stream. Um, is there any way for people to access the play other than through our spoilerific conversation just now? Because I think we've discovered on this podcast that we are not good at not spoiling things. <laughs> <laughs> but here's what I will say. We could spoil the whole play for everybody. It's cyclical. It's like the Dybbuk. It begins and ends in the same place. So I assure anybody who's listening who's interested in the play that this is a play that is about the journey and not the destination. Um, it is, in fact, a cyclical narrative. <laughs> but the... Um, so the, the play will be streaming until December 12th, which may be too late for this, I'm not sure. But it'll be streaming till December 12th. And it was only the second public reading. So what will probably happen is when the American theater exits the coma, it's currently in, God willing, um, we will be able to sort of workshop it in a live context. Um, and anybody who's interested should subscribe to Rattlestick, um, to their newsletter, or follow me on Instagram. It's Liba, L-I-B-A, last name V-A-Y-N-B-E-R-G, because I'm a Jewy, 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 Jew. Um, or on Facebook, I tend to use both of those things professionally and, and invite people, which is how Mimi and I reconnected in this case. So so truly, it's a good it's a good place if you're interested in neurotic Jewess art. <laughs> I've got you. <laughs> I think we have some of those. Well, we will definitely include those links in our show notes. And Liba, again, thank you so much for sharing this beautiful piece of art and for coming on the show to talk with us. I appreciate you both so much. It means a lot. It means a lot. All right. Should we pause? And now for our second segment, where we are joined by our usual number three, Tamar Fox. Tamar, can you kick us off for the second discussion? Yes. I'm so glad to be back with you all. I'm sorry that I uh, missed that first discussion. It sounded really great. Um, so for our second segment today, we're going to be talking about gift giving. This episode is going to come out probably right at the end of Hanukkah. So uh, we can't really use this as a gift guide, but I wanted to talk with you all about what makes for good Jewish gifts and what makes for good gift giving practices. We talked a little bit about kind of the confluence of Hanukkah and Christmas um, <laughs> and how those things kind of exist in tension or not intention in our lives. But I wanted to talk a little bit specifically about gift giving gifts and how uh, we kind of practice practice all that. So let's start with what is a Jewish gift that you have received that you think of as like a really good Jewish gift? That is a tough question because I feel like I, the thing about Hanukkah is that it's a, a Jewish gift occasion, but I think it's pretty rare that the gifts that I give or receive are what I think of as Jewish gifts. I am not limiting this to Hanukkah. So this is any Jewish gift that you have received for any occasion in your life. Well, in my case, so as the two of you know, but um, many of our listeners probably don't know, my mom is a professional potter. Uh, she makes ceramics. And so in my life, actually, most of my Judaica objects are, um, are mom-made. 
And so um, what I have from her, for instance, is the washing cup that we use like for every bread eating instance in our home is a mom washing cup. Um, my mother, Mimi Stadler, Mimi Stadler Pottery, just to, you know, give be the good daughter and do the <laughs> shout out. Um, so it's funny because I don't think of those as like gifts with like a bow on top because it's more like, hey, mom, like we could use a kiddish cup. What have you got? <laughs> um, we sort of we sort of invite them. Um, but for me, it's really nice that um, a lot of my Jewish practical items are uh, with a touch of home that way. Hmm. Mimi, what about you? What's a good Jewish gift that you've received? So I am a very big practical. I, I love a practical gift um, and I always want to give a practical gift. And I think that it's. So I think a practical Jewish gift is pretty much essentially Judaica, but not something that you, like, I don't want more than two menorahs in my house and I don't want more than six Kiddush cups. So for me, it has to be like very carefully calibrated to like what you already have, um, or it has to be an antique or a family heirloom of some some kind. So I'm really limiting myself, painting myself into a corner. And then I start to think, well, some of my best Jewish gifts were probably things that I got for my wedding. Um, okay, here it is. I had to talk myself into this one, like talk myself there. Every year for high holidays, so far, everywhere that I've gone, there have not been enough machzorim or high holiday prayer books. So one of the best gifts that I got for my wedding was somebody gave us two sets of Koran machzorim, one for Rosh Hashanah and one for Yom Kippur. They're beautiful. They're nicely bound. We put our little nice. name plates in it. and. It's just really nice to have our own ones to take with us and not to feel like we're either taking from the community limited stash or like I'm worried I'm going to put this in my talus bag and forget to give it back or whatever. Yeah, that was one of my favorite gifts. Shout out to cousin Amelia Wolf, who's listening, who was the one who gave us those. <laughs> that is a really good gift. I have to keep that in mind. I have two Jewish gifts that stick out for me. One is when I graduated college, we had some friends who gave me a novel, which I've endorsed on this show before. It's called The Dream of Scipio, and it's by Ian Pear. It's one of those novels that takes place in like four different time periods, and you kind of see how they intersect, even though they live in like different centuries. And one of the things that connects all of them is the way that Jews are being treated in the different places and times. I just loved it. And I didn't, it's just like, I think about that book all the time. It's not like one of, I mean, I've never heard anyone talk about it ever. So it's clearly not thought of as like one of the Jewish books that everybody needs to read. It had a big impact on me. And I think it was like both a good book and it was kind of a, like, I didn't realize until I was like two thirds of the way through that um, the Jewish community was kind of the through line in the book. So that just made it extra interesting and fun. So, um, I would say that is one. And the other is, I don't know if you could really call this a gift because it's actually like something that I just inherited from my mom, but I have a bunch of challah covers 
that my mother made. And (laughs) my mom used to run um, a retreat for fourth graders and their families at my school. And everyone would make a challah cover as part of their like prep for this retreat. And because my mom ran it, like I went on like 25 fourth grade kalas <laughs> and um, we made a bunch of different kala covers. And the, the kala cover from my fourth grade kala is one that we use all the time. And, you know, it's like a kala cover that was made by a fourth grader. Like it's not like beautiful, but I really love it and it makes me happy whenever we use it. And like we also have kala covers that my mom made. Um, And one that my mom had given as a gift to some people in our family who like are not observant at all. And at some point after she died, they were like, she gave us this challah cover and we'll never use it. Do you want it? And I was like, okay. And they sent it to me. And so it was just kind of this weird kind of circuitous (laughs) gift. But it makes me really happy to have something like that. And it's very utilitarian. I mean, and challah covers are like a such a like quintessential Jewish thing. And like, you use it for like five minutes. (laughs) Like it's such a, it has such a short time period (laughs) in which it is useful, but it's very like visually the centerpiece of the table in a lot of ways. So it still carries a lot of, I don't know. It feels very important. Um, even though it's like, takes like so short of a time. Tamar, that reminds me of another really amazing Jewish gift that was actually given to me by my non-Jewish grandmother. She took a challah cover that I had made at some kid's event, maybe similar to this fourth grade challah. You know, it was one where like you draw and then you iron on like whatever the crayon drawing was, somehow it Mm -hmm. gets onto the fabric. So she took that and she outlined my drawing. She stitched, cross-stitched. I don't know exactly what it is. She basically gave it a nice silk backing and um, like outlined my drawing with really pretty thread. And the embellishment is just, it's, it's so beautiful and so thoughtful and uh, like this lovely way of making, um, serious something that I made as a child that would have been thrown away, but she, for whatever reason, thought to um, take it to the next level. And I I love that. It's not only my art, but it's her art and her taking me seriously. Yeah. That's so cool. Yeah. Yeah. I don't even know like how long that took her. I just got it one year for Hanukkah. So, all right. Well, thank you for segueing us nicely into Hanukkah gifts. So I'm curious if either of you have like a specific schema that you use for Hanukkah gifts. Like I know that some people are like something that you can use, something that you can read, like some whatever, like people have like a very specific list of things that they try and hit with gifts. And I'm curious if you have anything like that or Um, if you have any like strategy to your Hanukkah gift giving at all? For me, I feel like it's different every year and has more to do with the headspace I'm in that year than, um, than a consistent system. My siblings and I do have a pact that across our nieces and nephews, we do Hanukkah gifts and not birthday gifts. Like we had to make uh, a collective policy so that it didn't feel scattershot and, um, and it, didn't get out of hand. I find myself thinking for kids, I find myself thinking seasonally, like what's a good winter activity or things like that, just 
because I think, I don't know, getting a summer toy feels sort of silly in December. But it usually winds up being something on the practical side of fun. So this year, I sent some snow tubes. <laughs> it also depends on the recipients. Some family units more lend themselves to a single unified gift if it's if there's more common interests or things like that. And and some I I find myself like okay, every member of this household definitely needs their own special distinct thing because they have very you know very little in common except their membership in this household. <laughs> so you know I'm just trying to do something. Uh, <laughs> something that I think will actually be appreciated, but I think it, it depends more where my brain is. And I, I find the kid gifts wind up being a theme because once you get on a roll, it's like everybody's getting science kits of different age appropriatenesses or whatever. <laughs> what about you, Mimi? There's like this joke in my family that Lewis's are bad at <laughs> gifts and we really, really are. <laughs> like, I don't know when it started, but my parents would... Like, I, I remember one year I needed like new tires or something and it was in the summer and my parents were just like, <laughs> fine, it's your Hanukkah gift. <laughs> and like, you know, <laughs> and it's great when you need new tires and you're stressing about how much they'll cost. It's great to have somebody say like, I'll get it for you. But it's so, it's such a cop out from like, the intention of Hanukkah gift giving. Um, and I have to say, I've definitely picked up on, picked that up from my family. So I feel like every year when we gather for Thanksgiving, the question is like, what do you want for Hanukkah? And then you like <laughs> try to get them exactly what they just said they want. Um, and you know, and it's sort of similar for kids. I will say, I think, um, it's a really different process in my husband's family and it's a lot more creative. Uh, people don't say exactly what they want and send you a link. So you have to do a little bit more thinking. Um, and this year, you know, for me, it's always like, well, what's the thing that they won't do for themselves, but they might really mm -hmm. want. Um, and so this year for a lot of my family on that side, it was, you know, a gift certificate or credit towards their favorite restaurant and like maybe a bottle of wine or some cider to go with it. Just like, I feel like we all need a few more meals that we aren't making for ourselves and cleaning up for ourselves. Um, and then for kids, I go back and forth of just like getting them the thing that they want versus getting them the thing I want them to grow into. I find... I have mostly nephews. I find for my nephews, I'm more willing to get them like the Pokemon books that I think are stupid. And for my niece, I'm like, she needs Little House on the Prairie because every girl needs Little House on the Prairie. And I'm really trying to fight against that and get like Chronicles of Narnia for everyone or, you know, like. Boys have books that they need to read, too. Or, like, boys can read Little House on the Prairie. And I can't just shape my niece into, like, the girl I would want her to be or that I was. Yeah, I'm, I, I struggle with gifts. It's really hard for me. For what it's worth, my sister has been reading the Little House on the Prairie books with my mm. oldest nephew. And he is a big fan. 
That's so good to hear. Okay, great. They are good, but I will say, um, so my younger daughter was listening to the audiobooks of them for the first like three months of quarantine. And the Little House on the Prairie mm. has some very problematic racism. Little House in the Big Woods is actually much better, except just has like one instance where Pa sings a song with a racial epithet in it. And I was like, oh my God, <laughs> when that happens. But like, there, it, yeah. it's like once it's, once it's happened, it's like, it's once it's out in your house, it's out in your house. Um, but a good. My sister did say she's had some good conversations with her oldest about why white pioneers might have talked certain ways about American Indians and why it would have been in their interest to think certain ways about indigenous people. And so they've. Yeah. Maybe before you give Little House on the Prairie, you've got to recruit the parents. I would say Little House on the Prairie, much more problematic. Little House on the Big Woods. Just heads up for any other parents out there. That was my experience. I I find that's true for so many books. Like you have to Mm -hmm. prep the parents for like the conversations that it will bring up. I aspire to be a person who has like a very clear gift schema. And I usually do not. But this year, I did say that I was, for everyone, I made a donation to the Female Hebrew Benevolent Society that Mimi turned me on to and where I am on the board of managers. And um, also to uh, Phil Abundance, which is a local Philadelphia food bank. Um, And I got everybody a book. And I got everybody, um, well, I attempted to get everybody um, something from um, a black or indigenous artist or maker, but the post office has kind of not agreed with my plan. (laughs) And so that component of everyone's gift has not arrived yet for me. So I haven't been able to send them out to others, but so it will be like a leader part of it. I felt like particularly this year, I wanted, especially since I can't be with people to, for the gifts to kind of like hit on different kinds of things. I usually do the thing where you say like, what do you want? And then you get the person like exactly what they say. But I just was like, I, I miss my people and I want to be a little bit more creative about it this year. I don't know. I feel like that's all, there's always a balance. Cause it's like, if you ask and they tell you, then you really have to <laughs> get that thing. Um, but like, if they say that they want a Pokemon book, like, and you don't <laughs> want to buy a Pokemon book, like you're kind of up a Creek, you know? Yeah. Um, and so I have really enjoyed because I can't be spending time with people in person, like having an opportunity to do a little bit of um, thinking about like what would they really like. Um, and I typically do not give Jewish themed gifts on Hanukkah, which is like interesting. Cause like, why, why not? It's because Hanukkah doesn't seem that Jewish. <laughs> <laughs> it's the least Jewish Jewish holiday. <laughs> it kind of is in a weird way. I mean, like, I don't know, Tubi Shvat maybe gives it a run for its money. But like, other than that, I feel like there's just not that much there there. And like, you could definitely give someone a Hanukkah, but like, 
I think dreidels are dumb. Everything beyond a Hanukkah. I don't know. Maybe if I made my own candles, but that's not my craft of choice. So, I mean, I feel like the Jewish themed Hanukkah gifts are kitsch. Um, and there's actually been a lot. Maybe there is every year and this year I'm just more attuned to it. But I feel like there's been a lot this year about Jewish kitsch. Um, there was a piece in Hey Alma about um, something along the lines of like, why is your Hanukkah crap so crappy? And also, why isn't there more of it? Um, <laughs> which I loved. Um, and then I'll also share a link to a roundup of all of the Hanukkah decoration fails or Hanukkah gift fails in which stores try to create something for Hanukkah and end up, you know, misspelling the holiday or putting just like backwards Jewish letters on a dreidel. Um, <laughs> and I, I, because I'm like a utilitarian gift giver, I can't give anything like that sticky or kitschy. Um, but I see the appeal. I mean, it's not a very Jewish holiday to Marge. I sort of agree with what you're saying. And so like, let's just ham it up and I don't know, put a happy Lamaka <laughs> sweater on or something. I don't know. Yeah. I did have a coworker. Um, so I, so somebody uh, wished me a happy Hanukkah in a group meeting in which there were two other, perhaps less visibly obvious Jews. Um, and so that coworker was like, oh, and is anyone else celebrating? And they were like, uh, I am, and the, I am. And so one of them um, has a very non-stereotypically Jewish last name. Um, and she messaged me afterwards and she's like, I've been thinking about getting an ugly Hanukkah sweater and maybe it's time because nobody knows I'm Jewish. <laughs> <laughs> but I never go for Jewish kitsch. I feel like the three categories in my head of Jewish gifts, quote unquote, are um, like books, ritual items and kitsch. I never go for the Jewish kitsch. I just I don't know. There's like enough Jewish substance in my life that I don't feel like I need the, the Jewish non-substance, maybe. Mm -hmm. It makes me think of um, the discussion around bar and bat mitzvah gifts and like how, at least in my orbit, like it tended to be that for bar mitzvahs, the boys got Jewish books and the girls got jewelry, mm -hmm. um, which bugged me even at the time. Um but it was also the case where the boys also got ritual objects and the girls mostly just got the jewelry. Um, but it was also the case that the boys complained about the books. <laughs> like, this is no fun. I don't want a whole bunch of Jewish books. I'm turning 13. Um, and my parents always had tons of street cred because they would just give a gift certificate to the local electronics store so that you could buy yourself video games or a disc man or whatever it was at the time. And everybody thought like, this is so much better than <laughs> the Jewish gifts I was getting. Um, but I'm trying to think if I got anything that I would construe as a Jewish gift for my bat mitzvah, um, which was not a huge affair. Um, but honestly, I, I can't think of anything. Nothing. What did, did you guys get very no. Jewish what, that were Jewish, Jewish gifts? I don't think I can think of anything. There must have been something. Um, you didn't get candlesticks? No. That's so interesting. The candlesticks would be a bat mitzvah thing to you. 
I remember, it's funny because I don't remember this for my own bat mitzvah, but I remember for my older sister's bat mitzvah that she got a ton of jewelry boxes, but very little jewelry. And we were like, what are we supposed to do with all these jewelry boxes? Um, what are we going to put in them? So I remember that. And I remember that she also got a lot of um, of candlesticks. Like she got three or four different sets of candlesticks and a really, really fragile and nice Havdalah set, which mm. immediately broke. Oh. I don't think that I got candlesticks for my bat mitzvah but now i can't remember but i do think of candlesticks as kind of a quintessential girls bat mitzvah gift um i think that my problem is that i really want to give people the like ritual items but those there's just so taste is so much a factor in those like i'm really a traditionalist yeah. and i really in terms of my Judaica taste, not in terms of almost anything else. Um, and I really <laughs> like some of the kind of plainer and more minimalist um, ritual items. But there's like, I feel like Judaica goes through these like weird phases where there's like, everything is like a certain one of two different styles. And it's mm-hmm. like, if you don't like either of those and you're not in Israel, it's really hard to find something that is going to, like really work for you. I guess it's a little bit easier now because of Etsy. I feel like there's a lot of actually interesting Judaica on Etsy and I found some great mm-hmm. stuff there, but um but I think it it is more challenging. Um and like honestly the best this is one of those like annoying things to say because it's like okay, but what if you just want to spend 50 bucks? But like an amazing gift is to like make a tally with someone. Um, my mom like took some friends to a fabric store and was like, what fabric do you want? And then they like tried draping it over their shoulders and they like thought about like if it was heavy or not. And then like she would hand stitch the atara for them for their tally and then help them tie the tzitzit. Seat seat. And like that is a super meaningful gift and something that people can use throughout their lives. And it's like, you know, I know adults, both men and women who like still wear the talit that my mom made with them. And like, that's really cool. It's not, that's a time and money investment. Mm-hmm. Um, although a talit is nice because like it actually involves like almost no sewing. Like it's just a square fabric. So you don't really need to be like good with a sewing machine to, to do that. But I think that is the kind of thing that you can do if you really want to, but that involves like the recipient participating to make it really meaningful. I got a lot of Jewish stuff for my bat mitzvah, actually. Um, I remember getting several coffee table books, which is what every 12-year-old girl wants. Um, but it was like great American Jewish women right. or like yes. Jewish art across the ages. And they sat on my bookshelf. Um, also... When your name is Miriam, you, well, I got a lot of Mm -hmm. Miriam's cups Mm -hmm. and it was a time in Judaica when the style was ceramic pottery with like these cartoonish, very round faces. Mm -hmm. Like if you think of that claymation Haggadah, does that ring any Mm -hmm. bells? So I got a Miriam's cup. I got more than one Miriam's cup with these 
cartoonish <laughs> faces of Miriam and Moses and Aaron. That was funny. <laughs> I assume um, that you use them every year. All the time. Um, <laughs> I do still have it. And there's one that's like a champagne flute glass one with etching. And then, but the funniest bat mitzvah gift I got was from a non-Jewish friend. Shout out to Tyler Fuller, who will not listen to this. It was a beautiful Tiffany's jewelry box with my initials on it. And then the date of my bat mitzvah engraved on it as if like, it was just like really funny misreading the significance of the day, like that it's not about May 27th, 2000, the year, you know, it's like, yeah. Every time I see it at my, my mom's house, I'm like, what happened on that? Oh, I guess that was my bat mitzvah. That's funny. <laughs> like the date of the party. Yeah, yeah. Not like, parshat b'chukot hai. Well, I have to say one really... Um, so there was this older couple in my neighborhood when I was growing up um, that were fantastic gift givers um, who actually every year. So they were semi-retired my entire life and they did a lot of traveling throughout the year. And throughout the year, they would collect mementos from different places around the world and assemble them for Mishloach Manot packages to give on Purim to a small list of people. So every year you would get, you would, it would be this great honor to receive a Mishloach Manot from the Weisses. And they would enclose a poem that you know, explained where they had gotten everything and the significance of it. Um, and so it might be like a shelf-stable food item, like a piece of, I don't know, like fudge or taffy or something from a particular location. Or it might be like a, a beautiful pin in the shape of a fish from Rosh Hashanah time when they were in such and such place or whatever. So they would, and they would collect these. And there was this small uh, list of families that got these Mishloach Manot packages um, from their travels. And that was really beautiful. And they were also, they were also dedicated gift givers for, for occasions, um, for births and engagements and, um, and weddings. Um, and actually um, one half of this couple just passed away and I was speaking, um, I was speaking to one of them, the other one uh, for a shiva call. And I was saying, you know, um, I was just unpacking some items. We just moved. I was just unpacking some items. And the very first thing I opened was our Kiddush cup that you gave us for our wedding. And Kiddush cups from this family are this really significant thing because when my siblings and I were born, they gave my parents child-sized Kiddush cups as baby gifts for us. And when I got married, they gave my husband and I a Kiddush cup, um, a beautiful sort of antique style Kiddush cup with a chuppah scene on it. Um, and when my daughter was born, they gave us a little Kiddush cup and it was mm. the next generation of the Weiss Kiddush cup. It's, I mean, I think anything silver I own basically is a gift from them. It's not so much about themes of what I get or whatever, but that, that there's a, a theme in receiving from this family in a specific through line kind of way, um, that I actually come to think of it. I think they are the most dedicated Jewish gift, gift givers, um, that I know. And, um, I mentioned this to him and he was saying, we decided very early on in our marriage that even if people would rather get a check when they're starting out, that we realized from ourselves that 
the the things that we received, that we used, that we thought of those givers, that that meant more. And we wanted to be givers like that. And so they were just such wonderful gift givers. And I've been thinking of them recently since she passed away, but also as I see and use the things that they gave us every Shabbat. There is something so special about getting a gift that you do use often and that does make you think of the person who gave it to you, you know, every time you pick it up. There's something just so meaningful and warm, warm making about that um, experience. Yeah, agreed. I'm really glad that you brought up Mishlach Manot because that is something that I have been thinking about um, a lot lately. I, this, <laughs> this is so embarrassing. I'm kind of obsessed with our garbage men. Like I, <laughs> this is a weird development during quarantine is that I like really love our garbage workers and I look, look forward to them coming every week. And I've started buying Gatorade and I give them Gatorade every week. The week of Thanksgiving, we, we like made muffins and we gave them all like muffins and like a little turkey hand. Thank you thing. And I was thinking like, as we were making them, I was like, oh, this is just like making Mishlach Manot. And I have been thinking a lot about how like, I want to give Mishlach my note to all of these people who have kind of like made our lives possible this year. Um, and that I feel very lucky that I have the kind of schema of Mishlach my note already in my head that it's like, you can just give like a nice little gift to people. Um, and that is a gesture that, is very meaningful. And there's something about like that, that I feel like I take away from just like a little bag of like, you know, candy and a, a muffin or whatever it is. It just, and like a little note that says like from our family, like that's a thing that I do every year, but like having an opportunity to do it for people who kind of like make my life possible now has made me really happy and is like a kind of new kind of gift giving that I have been thinking about this year. Yeah, I love that. And it's a different way of thinking about a Jewish gift. It's not that the item is so Jewish, it's that Judaism actually has some gifts sort of encoded, um, that there are these specific Jewish gift occasions, much more so than Hanukkah, actually, um, that are part of the ethos that that's true. I really like that. And I like the idea that it's like you, the idea of like celebrating, like, almost being taken down by something by giving gifts to people around you. Um, that feels very resonant right now as we're kind of like dealing with this virus. And, um, it just feels like there is, I mean, about to get super cheesy, which is not my normal way of being, but like, I do feel like every day is, is a gift and I feel much more aware of it now than I ever have before. Um, and you know, the, all of the different kind of systems and people who make our lives possible are much more visible to me now. And I just feel both like very much at the mercy of this world that we live in. And also so grateful for the fact that like every day, you know, I can wake up and have a cup of coffee and like put something in the garbage can and my, my buddies will go take it away at the end of the week. I'm thinking also, like, for us, the garbage man is a source of entertainment for my truck-loving one-and-a-half-year-old. So it's like, there, we, we will actually, like, wait by the window for the garbage and recycling and compost. It's really exciting. 
Um, okay, maybe this is a good opportunity for us to move along to endorsements. Mimi, what would you like to endorse? So I, um, this is actually related to a Hanukkah gift. So podcast listeners, you can't see this, but I'll try to describe it. My gift from Daniel tonight was, this is the only gift I'll get. It's a keychain, a leather keychain in the shape of a squid. <laughs> It's so random, and I like definitely laughed at him and probably hurt his feelings. Um, and he said, "But you really liked that movie, My Octopus Teacher, on Netflix." And he was after I expressed my love for this documentary. He like went out and got a gift that made him think of My Octopus Teacher, which is a squid. I think Daniel was really embarrassed that I said he got a crappy gift. And so I've actually been like carrying this around all night and telling everybody about it. And I've realized, and okay, so my endorsement is for the Netflix documentary, My <laughs> Octopus Teacher, um, because I, it, it really was just a beautiful film that allows you to escape like whatever your reality is in this moment. And just helped me like remember that I am this, I am in this one little part of the world, but there are just worlds and worlds going on um, under my feet, in the ocean, in the sky, you know, even like probably living in my pillow, which I try not to think about. Um, and there's a lot of wisdom to all of those little worlds. Um, and so... I, in honor of this amazing gift from my husband, I want to endorse my octopus teacher on that. That is a great endorsement and gift. Zahava, what do you have? <laughs> I have been um, looking at some of our children's books. And so when I initially signed my daughter up for PJ Library, um, the first book I got, which I think just might be the general first book they give, um, is Joseph Had a Little Overcoat by Sims Tabak. Mm -hmm. um, and it came out in 1999 originally. Uh, and as I was leafing through it, um, I was like, this is okay. It's an adaptation of a Jewish folktale about um, somebody who recycles and recycles and recycles the same item. So they, you know, in this in this version of the folktale, they have a coat, it gets worn out, and they shorten it to a jacket, and it gets worn out, and they turn it into a scarf, etc. Um, and I said, isn't this already a children's book? And then we received, as a hand-me-down from a family in the neighborhood, an earlier generation of PJ Library books, um, and we received what I remembered from, from when I was younger, which is... Uh, Something from Nothing by Phoebe Gilman, mm -hmm. which is a retelling of the same folktale in a somewhat different way. Um, and now that we have both, I was comparing them and realizing that they both have amazing illustrations. So I'm actually endorsing the illustrations of both of these books, um, Something from Nothing by Phoebe Gilman and Joseph Had a Little Overcoat by Sims Tabak. Um, both of these books are set in quote unquote, the shtetl, if that's a location. Um, and both of them have lots of extra detail um, and really vivid illustration um, 
to give a broader sense of the world in which they take place. So Something from Nothing has quite a lot of images of the shtetl around the main characters and, you know, the professions of the neighbors and the, um, the sort of shingles on the roofs of the house and what are people wearing and doing in the background. Um, and it's beautiful and vivid. And then in a totally different style, Joseph had a little overcoat also has this vivid sense of being out in the countryside and these uh, bright sort of collage cartoonish renderings of the farm where he lives and the interaction between like the community and the men's chorus that he sings in and the wedding that he attends and the, the countryside versus visiting his married sister in the city. And all of these things are beautifully and vividly done. So they're very, very different kinds of illustrations. Both of them really beautiful. Both of them um, give you a really broad sense of content with a lot of really nice flourishes and touches. So um, just coincidentally, the two different tellings of this same folktale um, both have these really fantastic illustrations. Hmm. I think there's a third one from PJ Library. Correct me if I'm wrong, but there's also one called Rabbi Benjamin's Button, which I believe is the same <laughs> story. I haven't encountered that one yet, but does it have good illustrations? I, I don't know. I need to, I got it as a hand-me-down, but... My brother once commented, like, how many times do uh, does our folklore talk about a Jewish man who won't throw things away? <laughs> <laughs> Wait, too, too soon. Um, <laughs> I want to piggyback on that recommendation because I have really been enjoying um, a PJ Library book that we got that is an it's a reprint of an older book that I never saw as a child but it's called Meshka the Kvetch and it's by Arnold Lobel yes. and it is wonderful. Um, and it is a book about how kvetching is maybe not a great thing to do, which both <laughs> is a message that I need for me in my life and is an important message for my children. And therefore I just love Meshka the Kvetch. So definitely seek out Meshka the Kvetch, but my real endorsement, two words, Yerushalmi Kogo. Um, <laughs> so my so this week the New York Times um, published a recipe for Yerushalmi Kogo, and that got a lot of people talking about it in my sphere. And it makes sense actually as a Hanukkah food, even though I never thought about it before because it's a very oily food. Um, but I was part of a longer thread about Yerushalmi Kogel and um, one of my friends, Rabbi Noah Arnau, um, shared a recipe that he uses, which blew my mind because the last step of this recipe is put Kogel in oven on warm or low for 10 hours or overnight. <laughs> wow. So I'm here to tell you that I did that last night. <laughs> <laughs> and then this morning, my family went on a hike and in the car, I brought a insulated bag with a Yerushalmi <laughs> kugel in it. And at the end of our hike, we all sat at a picnic table and ate Yerushalmi kugel at, that had been cooked overnight on low. And it was totally delicious. And then immediately afterwards, we ran into the rabbi of our shul. <laughs> <laughs> so it was great. I highly recommend this recipe, which I will um, put in the show notes 
or any, I mean, the thing about Yerushalmi Kogel is that it can be challenging to make because you basically make, like, you put a bunch of sugar in oil and then you try and add that to noodles and it can be kind of clumpy. And so that, and it can also stick to the bottom of the pan. It's really okay because once you cook it, particularly if you cook it for 10 hours, um, the, the clumps will melt. And so you don't need to worry about it, even though it can be kind of stressful. This Yerushalmi Kogel recipe was such a hit that I'm going to be trying at least one other Yerushalmi Kogel recipe just to see, you know, which one is the best. But in general, like Yerushalmi Kogel, basically a dessert. I don't really know why anyone pretends it's anything else. Um, but totally wonderful. Probably not something that you should eat really frequently. <laughs> but uh, a lovely thing to eat at the end of that. <laughs> Fantastic. Mm-hmm. Also, I discovered today as a result of all of this that uh, my phone autocorrects Yerushalmi Kugel to Yeti Shalom, which is also good. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you all so much for listening. Thanks to our editor, Daniel Zana, for his work on this episode. If you have a minute, it would be great if you could leave a review for us on Apple Podcasts or let us know what you'd like to discuss on a future episode. We're always looking for new topics. You can leave a comment on a post on our Facebook page, search for Jewish Public Media, um, or on our website, jpmedia.co. Choose Talking and Shul from the list of podcasts. You can also donate to Jewish Public Media at jpmedia.co, and that's a really great way to support our show and make sure that we are able to bring you new episodes every month. Thank you so much, Zahava. Thank you. Thank you so much, Mimi. Thank you. Talk to you next month. We'll see you next month.